Brett the Wellness Base Camp hits your hometown of Adelaide this weekend. Oh, I'm so pumped, MP. The Brisbane Base Camp was a sellout and the feedback was inspiring. Christine said, keep up the incredible work and energy. You made me feel so, so good. Kira said, I loved all the speakers and the vibe in the room and there were so many aha moments. And Lauren said, no matter how many times I hear each of these people speak, I learn new things and always have action steps to take away. Oh, how inspiring is that, MP? It's great to see this event making a real shift in people's lives, Bretto. So jump on board for Adelaide folks, Kim Morrison, Damien Christoph, JP and Andy from Smashed Avocado, myself and the hometown hero, Brett Hill. Oh, MP. The Wellness Base Camp, Saturday, April 7 at the Arca Bar in Adelaide. Two for one tickets available with the code COUNTDOWN at thewellnessbasecamp.com on Eventbrite or search for The Wellness Base Camp Adelaide on Facebook. The code again is COUNTDOWN with the tickets available at thewellnessbasecamp.com on Eventbrite or by typing The Wellness Base Camp Adelaide on Facebook. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the Real Food Reel with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. In episode 166 of the Real Food Reel, we are joined by Megan Taylor. Megan has a doctorate in naturopathic medicine and completed two years of postgraduate training in primary care and naturopathic gastroenterology. In today's episode, we explore functional gastroenterology, or simply put, we're talking about your poo. You will learn all about our main elimination pathway, why we need to break down the taboo around the subject of poo, the impact of LCHF on your daily movements, natural remedies, and so much more. Hi, Megan, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Steph. Appreciate it. Really looking forward to this topic today. It's one that we speak about on The Real Food Real quite often, and and I guess that's because it is so important. Um, but before we dive in, let's talk about you. I'd love to hear more about your background and your training and then certainly what you do these days. Of course. Great. Um, So I am a naturopathic physician. I'm in the United States. I'm in, um, right now I'm in Seattle, Washington. So far corner of the States. And I um, went to school in Portland, Oregon at the National University of Natural Medicine, where I got a four-year doctorate in naturopathic medicine. So here in the States, naturopathic doctors are, um, depending on the state you're in, kind of treated sort of like primary care providers. So trained as such, your general GP. Um, but I kind of deviated during my training. I had my own personal interests and personal experience in gastrointestinal health and really wanted to dive more into that and perfect timing kind of associated with my, um, timing at, in school, 
a couple of my who, 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 the folks who became my mentors, uh, Dr. Allison Seebecker and Dr. Stephen Sandberg Lewis, both really well-known naturopathic doctors now, um, were just sort of starting to get really into this whole concept of small intestine bacterial overgrowth or SIBO, um, which we view now as causing a good portion of the cases of IBS out there. Um, and so I was lucky enough to be just right place, right time. I got um, connected with them and really dove in. I found it fascinating. I wanted to work with a patient population and um, feel confident in navigating these sort of more complex, hard to diagnose and hard to treat gastrointestinal disorders. So that's where I landed. Um, and I was lucky enough to study with both of them, had two years of residency um, that focused both in primary care, but also this functional gastroenterology um, component. Um, and now I do a practice that's a bit mixed. Um, I get to do a little bit of primary care and then a lot of functional GI work. Um, and working with constipation and patients who are experiencing constipation is definitely a mainstay for me week to week. So it's, it's fun to be able to talk about that today. Yeah, for sure. And as I mentioned, a very important issue, but it can be a little bit taboo, although <laughs> it shouldn't. So I'll just, um, I guess, a word of warning for our listeners. Maybe if you're eating breakfast while you're chewing, <laughs> this may not be the best episode for this point in time, but um, again, a very important topic and one that we know we need to break down that taboo around. So let's, you know, obviously we're going to talk about, um, I love the term functional gastroenterology, um, but really what we're going to talk about is bowel movements and your poo. So why does it matter so much? Great question. Um, I have a lot of patients actually come in and sort of, you know, they might not be coming in for gastrointestinal complaints, you know, might not notice anything. And I ask them, as I do, like any good naturopathic doctor would do about the number of bowel movements they have in a week. And they might say, oh, I go maybe once or twice a week. And that always is a little bit of a red flag because ideally we're going every day. And the reason we're going every day is it's one of our main elimination pathways. You know, the way we get not only sort of toxins, environmental toxins that we're exposed to, you know, drugs that we have to take for various conditions, um, plastics, you know, all these things we're exposed to day to day in our increasingly sort of toxic world, we get out, get those things out of our bodies primarily via the stool. So the longer we hold on to the stool, right, the more, the fewer bowel movements we have each week means we're holding onto the stool a little bit longer, the more likely we are to reabsorb those toxins. The same is true for other things that are produced by our bodies. So not necessarily toxins, but things like estrogen, testosterone, some of these hormones that we produce in our body, one of the main ways we get rid of excess hormone, which is important for not only symptoms of hormone dysregulation, but also cancer risk, yeah. is via the stool. So what we know is that regular elimination not only is helpful for decreasing environmental toxins, but also the things we, we produce in our own bodies that we need to get rid of on a regular basis. So regular elimination is key. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, we are looking for that daily bowel movement, aren't we? And um, let's sort of set the scene as to, just for the benefit of our listeners, as to what is regular, like, you know, daily, but, but what sort of bowel movements yeah, that's also a good question. All of us have really different definitions, right? Unless we're medical doctors who've been trained, right? Um, most of us have really different definitions of what constitutes regularity, um, regular bowel movements. And so the sort of 
clinical definitions, what many of us were trained to recognize, not naturopathically necessarily, but sort of in the conventional model, is that constipation is deemed sort of anything less than three bowel movements a week. Now, like I mentioned, naturopathic doctors and a lot of functional medicine providers really would prefer to see people going once a day for all the reasons I mentioned before. Um, and additionally, it's not just about the frequency. The frequency becomes sort of like a, a main focus. It's not really the, not really necessarily the only thing that we need to be paying attention to. We really want the stool to be easy to pass, meaning there's really no straining involved. If you're having to strain or bear down to pass your bowel movement, it's likely that you're a little constipated or there might be some position things we could ta- we can chat about later, but that's uh, uh, that's evidence of constipation. So I've got a lot of patients who say, "Oh yeah, I have a bowel movement every day," but they have to strain at it. Right? We also want to make sure that the bowel movements feel complete, meaning you go and you're done, and you feel like you're done. You don't feel like there's anything left in. And anybody who's had an experience of an incomplete bowel movement knows what I'm talking about. It's pretty obvious. The other piece is sort of the shape and size and texture and consistency, which, which means that you kind of have to look at your bowel movement, which is definitely a, a subject that is, can maybe uh, turn people off a little bit. But often I'm asking patients to tell me what their poop looks like. What does their stool look like? And we'll often refer to a handy dandy chart called the Bristol stool chart or Bristol mm-hmm. stool scale. And this rate st- kind of gives you sort of the standard, most common stools, one through seven, that look at um, sort of overall texture of the stool. So you, really what we want is sort of a smooth, thin, log, right? That comes out, um, we often call them like smooth, smooth snakes that come out, that they're, they're in one piece. They're relatively smooth. smooth. They're not too wide. Um, if they are bigger, you know, around, especially if they're bigger around and cause pain, or they're like small little um, rabbit pellets, but on the, maybe the larger size, you know, those kinds of stools, uh, those are all evidence of constipation. So it's not uncommon for me to also have patients come in and say, oh yeah, I have a bowel movement every day. When we look at that chart together, they say, oh wow, I'm really in this more constipated range where my stool is harder, maybe rounder, um, maybe more compact and not that smooth snake that's easy to pass that we often talk about. Yeah, for sure. I love the Bristol stool chart and I will pop that in the show notes for um, our listeners to check out where they sit on that chart. Um, Yeah. And ideally we're, ideally we're really looking for a stool right around four. That's that smooth snake. So in case people are looking, looking to the Bristol stool scale, they can, they can kind of know what we're aiming for in a, in a healthy stool. I forgot to mention the other piece we're always looking for is we definitely don't want to see any blood. We don't want to see any mucus and we don't want to see any undigested food beyond maybe the occasional if, if, you're, if your listeners are eating, you know, tomato skins often come out, you know, corn can come out, um, but really there shouldn't be undigested greens or anything like that. So I, I also make, make a point to encourage patients to look at their stool and to look for those things. Yeah, I think that's really important because this is where we can start to obviously acknowledge the significance a little bit more and break down the taboo because if you're not looking, then, um, you know, there's potentially things that you're missing that can tell you a lot about the, the function of the body and maybe some areas that need supporting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, all right. So from that constipation side of um, the equation where it's obviously more rabbit um, palate-like, as you say, what would be some of the main causes? 
Yeah, that's that's something that I'm often kind of working with patients to to get at. I think the most obvious that are often, um, especially in our, probably not your listeners necessarily, because they're all really well informed, they're working hard to take care of their health and to feed their bodies in the way that they need. But common causes of constipation sort of in the average person are lack of hydration and lack of adequate fiber intake. Um, we know that, right, we need fiber, sort of indigestible to us, to, to our human selves, indigestible uh, food stuffs coming through, often found in mostly plants, nuts, seeds, um, and also whole grains. Um, those things coming into the diet, coming into the diet, they help ultimately at the other end, um, help to bulk the stool, really to give it good form. The insoluble fibers especially help to bulk the stool. And the soluble fibers, which are more of the gel-like fibers, these are things people will often see if they make a chia pudding or, or put, put uh, water in flaxseed, that kind of, that kind of gelatinous uh, texture. That, those are more your soluble fibers. These two, th- those fibers help to attract water to the stool. So you need a good mix of insoluble soluble and soluble fibers to both bulk the stool and hydrate the stool. And then of course you need adequate water intake to hydrate the stool. So one of the very first things I do with patients where we don't feel like fibers is is adequate or hydration is adequate, that's often where we'll start because man, that's easy. That's an easy intervention and we can really, really make a difference there. The other thing I would say that's pretty common in our in our cultures these days is a lack of physical activity. A lot of folks are just really sedentary and we, and movement of our bodies actually helps to stimulate not only healthy circulation, blood flow, lymph flow, nerve action in all of our organs, including our colon, but also helps to stimulate some natural reflexes in the body that contract the colon. Um, when we, for example, those, those, those listeners that might wake up in the morning and, you know, after their cup of coffee or after their morning stretches have a bowel movement, that's because movement, physical activity, and expansion of the stomach with that coffee or water or tea that happens first thing in the morning stimulate colonic contraction. So I'm always making sure to optimize those things first. Also knowing, of course, that there are a lot of other underlying causes that we also need to explore. So of course there are conditions. This is why seeing if you you have longstanding chronic constipation, it's a good idea to talk to somebody about it. Um, And especially if those things that I just mentioned don't really help because there's a lot of other things that could be, could be going on. Things like diabetes, multiple sclerosis and Parkinson's disease, those all happen with, um, can can result in constipation because they change nerve innervation to the colon. So you get less of that uh, colonic contraction we mentioned. Also, you can have issues with your hormone balance. So hypothyroidism is the most common cause, especially a functional hypothyroidism. So maybe not a frank hypothyroidism that your GP or conventional med doc picks up on, but maybe a more functional hypothyroidism that one of your other providers might pick up on. That can result in constipation. Of course, there are many drugs on the market, and a lot of people are on lots of medications these days, including including things like opiate painkillers. Those are hands down one of the most challenging medications when it comes to constipation because they just stop intestinal transit. So these are all sort of some of the possibilities. You know, maybe the more obvious underlying causes for um, constipation. Of course, we can talk a little bit more about the. Uh, more subtle ones, but that's kind of a place to start. 
Yeah, for sure. And great summary. I think definitely important to acknowledge the basics. I feel like in this day and age with Dr. Google and the amount of information we have on social media, like of course it can be positive, but it it tends to lean us towards these sort of magic solutions when, Mm -hmm. you know, we have to absolutely acknowledge the, the basics as being like the building blocks of a house per se. So, you know, hydration, absolutely. And fibre, I want to talk more about this actually in terms of what you feel is um, like what is enough and Mm -hmm. um, potentially some differences between a more real food template that isn't high in our sort of more conventional recommendations Mm -hmm. of whole grains for bowel movements. Could you speak to that? Yeah, it's a great question. I work with a lot of folks who not only follow that kind of a low grain or no grain um, diet, not just for health reasons, but also I work with a lot of patients in the in the SIBO community, the small intestine bacterial overgrowth community. And we know that those folks tend to just really not do great on fibers, um, especially plant, especially these grain based fibers. So we often are working on low grain or no grain approaches um, to dealing with constipation. It can be a real struggle because especially when we make that change in diet and we and we drop the grains, for example, or we drop the beans that previously were providing a lot of um, both soluble and insoluble fibers, um, there can be a backlash of constipation. And that's a really common result for a lot of folks when they make these dietary changes. So what I, in those groups, what I generally do is really look for bringing, really making sure that simultaneously with reducing the whole grains, the beans, um, things like that, that they're really making sure to make a concerted effort. And I would hope that most people would to really boost up the veggie intake. So really prioritizing leafy greens, really prioritizing, um, if they can, those, those veggies that, um, have both a good mix of soluble and insoluble fibers. These are things like, um, Brussels sprouts and cauliflower and, um, Jerusalem artichokes and artichokes themselves. And making sure to eat the seeds and skin of those fruits and veggies, those, those are where a lot of the insoluble fiber lands. So not make sure not to peel all your apples and things like that. Um, and then sometimes what we'll add in um, is a real effort to bring in more nuts and seeds because those have quite a lot of fiber, especially if they retain the skin on them. And, and seeds, especially like flax and chia, they're a great source of both soluble and insoluble fiber and making them into things like a chia pudding or adding them to smoothies or even just sprinkling them ground on your salads can be a really nice way to get a good amount of soluble and insoluble fiber when you're doing a this more plant-based, less of the grains and beans approach. Um, I don't usually tell people, hey, go out and eat 20 grams or 30 grams of fiber just because every body is so different. So I have some patients that this is never an issue and others that it, it really is. So instead of giving like a a, a goal, a gram goal, I, I make it a bowel movement goal, right? So I'm going to tell them to, you know, keep working on increasing, increasing those foods per tolerance because those can sometimes be a little rough on the digestion in other ways. But keep on increasing and increasing those foods until you find that sweet spot. And for a lot of people, it's just finding those foods. um, Gosh, blueberries, berries generally tend to be a great one that people go with, but finding those particular foods that they incorporate in the diet on a daily basis and plenty of hydration that really can usually solve a majority of those constipation cases that happen as a result of the dietary changes. Yeah, great. There's a few things I want to unpack there. Um, So, 
Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think it's really easy to look on the internet and be given that magic 20 grams a day or whatever it might be. And um, I love that you say it's more of a bowel movement goal because that can get the individual to think about what they're looking for. And obviously, um, making small changes to start with can allow you to sort of land on that sweet spot when you do get the changes in um, your stool. So I think that's really important. So thank you for clarifying that. Um, but I also wanted to talk to you more about the the time period. You know, we know that if you're going into that LCHF um, template, what what's reasonable do you think for your bowels to say slow down before you should expect to see um, them, I guess, come back online or is it too hard to answer because it's so individual? That's a great question. And I, you know, I don't think I've really thought about it in terms of, uh, you might've thought about it a lot more because you're, you're working with patients all on a very, maybe a similar dietary approach or dietary mm-hmm. template. I work with patients who are eating in so many different ways that I don't yeah. think about it generally, though I will say on average, especially my SIBO patients that go look, no grain and no bean, I would say, you know, if they're struggling at you know, a month out, I'm starting to look at other other pieces and other possible things in terms of supplementation. But mm-hmm. usually I would say within two to three weeks, things have sort of kind of righted themselves. And, and it's at that month follow-up that I'm often saying, is this still being, is this still an issue? And should we be investigating a little bit more, maybe using some additional supplementation or revisiting the way you're eating just to make sure that they're getting adequate fiber? It shouldn't take too terribly long in my opinion, but I'd love to hear what you've noticed too in your your practice. Yeah, like I think absolutely it can take people, you know, maybe a couple of days or a week, but I certainly wouldn't let, you know, my client um, just, I guess, put up with it. I mean, it may take longer with the, the, just the dietary change, perhaps if their bowels Mm -hmm. were a little bit lazy from relying on the real rough whole grains. Um, But I guess similar to you, we give them other strategies. You know, it might be as simple as giving them a little bit more magnesium powder or apple cider vinegar in that first phase so they can support their body to Mm -hmm. elimination because obviously we need to get the toxins and the hormones out and we need to Mm -hmm. um, again acknowledge the significance so yeah you're right other strategies um, but then yeah beyond that if some of those sort of more basic strategies that follow things like hydration and vegetables aren't working then I feel it's time to to explore a little bit further as you say so what do you do from a resistant starch point of view? And if you would mind um, just defining that for us as well. Yeah, so resistant starches, um, you know, it's not one of those areas that I've actually, because every one of my patients is so spe- so specific in terms of what they react to and what they don't. I will often use resistant starches um, less from a bowel movement and fiber approach, more so as, a, as, a, as an effort to feed the large intestine microbiome um, on a grain-free diet just to make sure that we're ensuring that they're adequately nourished and that when they're nourished and happy, we then tend to also have better bowel movements. Yeah. One, of the, one of the challenges that I struggle with, and resistant starches um, are ideally, right, they're resisting, they're resisting the small intestine fermentation in there and they're really being sort of seen as adequate food sources for those large intestine microbes. And I 
will use um, a variety of resistant starches, but I often will turn towards things like sweet potatoes, plantains, um, things like that for some of my underweight patients who really can't be completely grain-free, which I know is not necessarily your, your patient population, but some of those folks will often do the cooked and cooled and then reheated starches because those can increase the, the resistant starch content. Um, but it's a little bit of a resistant starches are a little challenge area for a lot of my patients just because of their specific um, sensitivity. So I, I don't have a huge patient population to comment mm. on. Yeah, I mean, I guess resistant starch in, in SIBO was always going to be challenging, especially mm-hmm. initially. But, I mean, I do love the just the conversation around the significance for the beneficial bacteria because absolutely, it's, it's slightly off topic, but um, just, you know, while I'm here because – you know, keto is so vogue at the moment and, you know, we try and draw our, our audience away from the extremes, but even LCHF can be too low in resistant starch. So, of course, mm-hmm. then the beneficial bacteria starve and the transit mm-hmm. time slows down and we get constipated as, as well as, you know, many other factors that come from that disruption to the internal ecosystem. So, yeah, yeah like it's not directly fibre, you know, as we were talking about specifically, but it obviously has a huge relationship to gut health and, and bowel movements. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that that's something not only in the keto community that's 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 or the extremely low low carb or um, approaches, but a lot of the patients who I'm working with who are struggling with gastrointestinal issues and really attempting to modify their diet in, in sometimes really extreme ways. And to try to minimize symptoms, which of course, nobody wants to feel poorly. Um, but simultaneously, I am often talking about just how essential it is to keep a rich um, microbiome um, and sort of large intestine ecosystem healthy and strong because you're absolutely right. They're not only producing all of those things that help with motility and proper elimination, but our um, large intestine microbiome is producing inc- an incredible number of metabolites that are circulating in our bloodstream. So I love using resistant starches as that, sort of that protective uh, food that's coming, foods that are coming in when you're following a lower, a lower carbohydrate, especially a, a grain-free uh, dietary approach. Yeah, lovely. So let's circle back um, to what you were speaking about before around incomplete bowel movement. So I think that's something that we can definitely address with what you also touched on about certain positions. Mm-hmm. But let's go there. Tell me what your thoughts yeah. are. Then. Yeah, the, the, we, I, Optimal position for bowel movements, I think, is something that is definitely becoming more popular in the functional medicine community and definitely more popular in in people who are um, really working hard to take care of their bodies, exercising and things like that. Um, because what we know is that we are, we are not really meant to poop sitting on a throne of a toilet, you know, that it's, a, it's such an awkward posture. If we look out at kind of cultures around the world who don't have, have toilets, right, in little bathrooms, um, often they're squ- squatting over holes. And this is how we've had bowel movements for our entire existence as human beings, except for more recently. Um, and so that squatting posture is really important. And it's, it, and it's a particular type of squatting. And I, I will mention that is that uh, the squatting, and it's not always possible for every body, um, right? Based on your, the health of your knees and your other joints. But ideally, you're really sitting in a wide foot squat, 
um, with the tailbone sort of pointed in the downward, tailbone segments are pointed in the downward direction. So not flared up towards the, towards the ceiling, but sort of pointed in the downward direction. And the whole point of this, and there's some great videos online that illustrate this really well, is to actually line up the descending colon with the sigmoid colon and rectum. So you get kind of a nice straight shot so that the bowel movement can really empty effectively. And it's specifically helping to sort of move out of the way a particular muscle called the puborectalis muscle that kind of helps to kink the, um, the, rectum to, pr- to help us with fecal continence, obviously a good thing. We don't want to mistakenly have bowel movements when we don't want them. But if we're in a seated position, like on a toilet, it stays, that muscle keeps the rectum kinked. And so what we really want to do is get into that full squat posture allow the erectalis muscle to move out of the way, relieve that kink, and so that the rectum really can empty freely. And I'll say sometimes just making this recommendation around squatting posture with bowel movements can resolve, completely resolve my, if somebody has a, a concern around incomplete bowel movements. Um, it's pretty phenomenal. So I really, I recommend that quite a lot. Now, how you go about getting into that squatting posture is varied. There's a lot of great um, stools that have been built. Squatty Potty is just one of them, but definitely probably the most well-known. They've got very hilarious videos on their website um, that helps you get into that posture. So that's, um, yeah, that's one thing I recommend for most every patient that's struggling with constipation, regardless of whether they're telling me the stool feels complete or not. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. I think that's really important and an area that I think is becoming more popular. You're right, but certainly not um, as well known from a strategy point of view. Yeah, exactly. Cool. A couple of other questions before we talk about some more um, remedies. What are your thoughts on um, someone that feels like they need that morning coffee to move their bowels? Is that necessarily a bad thing? You know, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing in part because there's just so much good, good research on, uh, you know, the benefits of a cup of coffee a day or two cups of coffee a day. And even, um, it's, you know, really potent antioxidant generally helps with, um, what we, we consider as a bitter helping with, you know, liver detoxification, bile flow, things like that. So generally I don't think it's necessarily a problem. What I do like to tell patients is it is to really try to differentiate between, you know, the beneficial effect of that cup of coffee and and really be honest with themselves about whether there's any detrimental effects of that coffee as well. So some people, you know, they drink a cup of coffee and they get actually diarrhea. They get loose stool. Clearly that that's not our goal, right? We're aiming for that, that type four. So if you're cleaning yourself off, cleaning, sorry, cleaning yourself out every day by having a bunch of loose stool after your coffee, that's kind of, that's not really what we're aiming for. Um, additionally, um, not some people just generally can't tolerate coffee. The caffeine in coffee um, can be particularly hard to break down for some people, or some people produce an excessive amount of adrenaline in response to drinking their coffee, epinephrine and norepinephrine in, in response to drinking their coffee. They get jittery, anxious, heart palpitations, sweating. Those folks probably shouldn't use coffee as their main laxative source. But for those folks that have that morning cup of coffee, ideally, without a bunch of creamer and sugar, of course, but having that cup of coffee in the morning um, to stimulate bowel movements, I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. Um, ideally, of course, we'd be using you know, food and, and hydration and position to really get at that bowel movement um, regularity, but a cup of coffee doesn't strike me as, a, as the worst option. Awesome. Thank you for clarifying. So let's um, speak to 
laxatives. So I just wanted you to clarify well, your thoughts around laxatives as a remedy um, and then we'll jump into any other suggestions that you have in terms of resolving or um, resolving constipation or supporting healthy bowel movements. Great. Yeah, so laxatives are a big, a big topic. Um, we have – there are many different types of laxatives, which is why the, why the topic can be a bit confusing. Um, so there are osmotic laxatives. These are laxatives that draw water into the colon to help to stimulate bowel movement. And these are things like um, – in the United States, we use a lot of Miralax. I'm not sure if that's really popular over there. Um, but that's sort of the most standard, run-of-the-mill osmotic laxative you can get o- um, over-the-counter in many drugstores. Um, this is also where magnesium sits in. So magnesium oxide or citrate powders can be useful as an osmotic laxative. Generally, these are considered pretty safe Um, pretty benign. Um, They're not causing any likelihood of becoming um, dependent on them. And so a little bit of osmotic laxative is generally um, seen as okay and safe. Um, Other laxatives include stimulant laxatives. These are laxatives that actually cause irritation to the intestinal lining, which triggers a bowel movement. So you'll find a lot of over-the-counter herbal remedies um, that contain these irritant laxatives, um, which a lot of patients don't realize that they're using, but things like Senna and Cascara, Sagrada. Um, I've, seen rem- I've seen herbal remedies that contain a lot of, a lot of cayenne pepper or um, Chinese rhubarb or other things that cause irritation to the gastrointestinal lining. And that triggers a bowel movement. Ideally, those sorts of stimulant laxatives or irritant laxatives aren't used in a long-term basis because they can basically make the colon dependent on them, meaning you can't have a bowel movement unless you use one of them. Um, the, the other piece is that they can also stain the colon. So what we know, one of our best, um, best ways of detecting colon cancer is via regular colonoscopy, where we actually scope and look for, for colonic polyps, um, which is a really phenomenal way to catch cancer before it ever becomes cancer. Um, and when we have one of these, especially Sen and Cascara on board, they can cause a staining of the colon called melanosis coli. They can make it really hard to see those polyps. And in those cases, or changes in the intestines generally. So two reasons why you really want to avoid regular use of these stimulant laxatives. Occasionally, I will recommend that folks use those when, for example, uh, they're about to take a you know six-hour flight and they know that they always get backed up when they when they fly or when they travel. Okay, for a day or two after you get to your destination, just fine. Or maybe they have a procedure where they require narcotics to help with pain. Okay, a day or two of these are, is just fine to get things going again, but really not using them long term. And then the, la- the last sort of group is our secretory. Um, and of course, there's, there, there's others in this, but I'll just keep it simple. Secretory um, laxatives. And these are things that help, that cause the body to, uh, to release not only um, water into the colon, but they do so via uh, stimulating, for example, sodium to go, salt to go into the colon or chloride to go into the colon. Those secretory um, um, laxatives are almost not even considered or kind of they kind of are both both considered laxatives and then also generally just called secretory agents those are becoming really really common so medicate a lot of pharmaceutical medications that are working on um improving the, the working on that secretory mechanism for laxatives yeah fascinating i think that's really um i guess it's important to acknowledge because yeah, the short term is very different to developing that dependency, which we absolutely want to avoid. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Thinking about it as like a short-term tool, just like you have all sorts of tools in your medicine cabinet to help mm-hmm. with symptoms as they arise. Um, but if you're having to use those types of stimulant laxatives on a daily basis to get things going, um, then really should work with a provider to find another, another approach because um, the consequences of long-term use are just, they put your health at risk. Yeah, for sure. So in terms of remedies, we've definitely got our basics like hydration and, and fiber and you've spoken about positions, all of which are great. Um, but did you have any other of your favorite remedies you'd like to share? Absolutely. So I think we talked about one of my favorites, which is magnesium, mm-hmm. a little bit of magnesium powder, yeah. magnesium citrate or oxide tend to be particularly useful. Um, they're, they're less well absorbed by the body. Therefore they make better laxatives. And it's a little confusing because a lot of people come back to me and say, I thought magnesium glycinate was the best or malate was the best. And yeah, those are better in terms of absorbing them into your body. So you can have more magnesium in your body, in your cells. But when we're using it as a laxative, we actually want less absorption. So we'll often go there with magnesium. I like magnesium because it's unlikely to upset a lot of my more sensitive GI patients. Um, but also a lot of us need a little extra magnesium. It can help with sleep, with anxiety and mood generally. Um, so we'll often dose it at night before bed and it's pretty easy to use. Um, your body generally is not going to absorb more than you necessarily need. So it's very rare to get magnesium toxicity um, from it. Um, and so long as people are using under you know, 600 to 1,000 milligrams a night, people generally um, are, are doing just fine with that. So that's generally one of my favorite go-tos. But I'll, I'll, I'll step back here and talk a little bit more about um, some other basics. One of my, another one of my favorites is um, stimulating blood flow, lymph flow, circulation, and just movement of, of the stool through the intestines by doing things like abdominal massage. There's a lot of different abdominal massage techniques um, out there, but just a simple massage technique um, that sort of moves with the direction of the large intestine from that um, right lower quadrant of the abdomen up towards the ribs, across underneath the rib cage, and then down um, up towards the left lower quadrant. That sort of that sort of movement um, can be really useful, and doing that nightly before bed with either a little bit, you know, either without any lotion or, or or a little bit of oil can be really nice for stimulating bowel movements. I'll often do that a lot with my. Uh, kid patients, so my pediatric patients that really struggle with bowel movements, they seem to respond really well um, to abdominal massage. There's also other sort of physical medicine modalities that can do similar things. So um, we were trained in, in naturopathic school to do something called constitutional hydrotherapy, but any forms of hydrotherapy, which is the application of cool and hot water to the abdomen, can be really beneficial. Um, some people use sine wave machines that are a gentle electrical current through the abdomen that can also help to stimulate bowel movements. And then, of course, things like acupuncture and moxa um, can be really beneficial. They're, they're often, you know, there's a lot of talk about the mechanisms they're working on, but at a real basic biochemical level, I mean, they really are stimulating nerve function, lymph flow, blood flow, circulation. Um, if we just keep it real simple um, and talk about that. So those are some of my favorite things. I don't, I want to remember those as sort of like a, a basic, you know, a, a, a first line therapy after all the things we talked about around hydration and physical activity and fiber as a real go-to um, before we bring in things like laxatives. Yeah. Amazing. That's yeah. so cool. 
There's also the fair number of um, other things I like to try. So it kind of depends, and this is where it comes into it comes in handy to know a little bit about the person's history. But there is a good amount of, you know, there's great research on various probiotic strains um, that help to stimulate bowel movements and improve um, bowel movements in relationship to, especially a more recent study that came out early last year, spring of last year, that uh, showed a particular strain of Lactobacillus ruteri or ruteri uh, was shown to decrease levels of methane produced in the large intestine. Methane actually slows intestinal transit and can cause constipation. And this particular strain at really low doses was actually shown to improve uh, the number of spontaneous bowel movements and lower methane levels. So it was really exciting to see. We've known forever that certain people respond really beautifully to particular probiotics or probiotic-rich foods for regularity. And this is just one example of, a, of a, the studies kind of catching up to say, oh yeah, it's definitely doing that. <laughs> so those are some of my go-tos, but also things like digestive enzymes, bile salt supplementation. If somebody is, we think that there might be a sluggish gallbladder on board that's not producing enough or not releasing enough gall, of bile in response to meals. Um, sometimes those things can be really helpful. And of course, there's herbs that can help to stimulate those functions as well functions of the pancreas and the uh, gallbladder to, to release the, I, the digestive enzymes and bile needed to digest foods. Yeah, lots of different strategies and obviously very important that it's um, individualized and just another reason why you'd work with a practitioner to guide your health journey. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One of the things also that I, I always like to mention, and this is especially true for people who have a history of long-standing constipation um, or uh, issues with, ba- with bowel regularity, and that's something called rectal um, or pelvic floor physical therapy. I'm not sure if you've chatted about pelvic floor physical therapy on your show before, but um, it's in, in, in situations of chronic constipation or chronic gastrointestinal issues, it's not uncommon for the musculature in the pelvic floor and the muscles that surround the rectum and the anus um, to get a little out of whack. Um, and this can be true both for chronic constipation, but also for people who experience fecal incontinence or issues with holding stool. Um, these, these particular physical therapists are trained in techniques that really help to balance the musculature in the pelvic floor around the rectum and the anus that can really be quite helpful with, for patients with chronic constipation. Um, and so I always like to, to put a plug in for that too, because um, these are really, really talented colleagues that do really good work with um, helping my patients when, when constipation has been a long-term struggle. Yeah, great. Lots of different strategies. That's awesome. Really, really great knowledge. Thank you so much for sharing that with us today. I'd love to give you the space to add anything else you'd like to share with us, but to definitely direct us to your online home and social media so our listeners can connect with you and learn more. Thanks, Steph. It was such a pleasure to talk to you today and to talk about constipation, which really is truly one of my favorite subjects these days to chat about. Um, I best way to find out more about me is actually via my website, which is Megan M E G A N Taylor T A Y L O R N as a naturopathic. D, as in Dr. Megan Taylor, ND.com. From there, you can find contact information, ways to schedule online for distance consults, as well just kind of read more about me, my background, and um, some good resources on that site. Um, and then Facebook uh, page of the same name, Megan Taylor, ND, can also connect with me that way. So those are the two ways to connect. Thanks again, Steph. I appreciate it.
Amazing. It was wonderful to have you on the show. It's one of my favourite topics as well, much to my husband's. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, we'll keep talking about it until it becomes normalised. Thank you for your knowledge again. And it was awesome to have you on The Real Food Real. Thanks, Steph. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.